Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And before we get into the news, just a little program update. We're going to be switching around the American Prestige schedule a bit. Um, Fridays will now be dedicated just to our news updates and discussions. Sundays will have a bonus interview for uh, paid subscribers, and then we will release a free interview on Tuesday. So everyone, uh, we're now, uh, what, what would the word be? You're, you'll now get your prestige uh, several days a week. Um, so I hope everyone enjoys this new schedule. Um, now with that out of the way, let's get into the news. And why don't we start with uh, President Joseph Robinette Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia and Israel. So Derek, why is this important? What's been going on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, it's to say that it's important. I don't know. <laughs> that it might be it a probably bit of an is on some level. It might be an exaggeration. Uh, but this is something that the administration, um, well, it's been like an open secret for weeks now. Uh, initially, there was some thought that Biden would go, you know, make an appearance in Israel and, and uh, go groveling to Saudi Arabia uh, this month uh, as he was uh, he's already scheduled to go to Europe. It was sort of like maybe they'll tack it on at the end. But they they said uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, that uh, they weren't going to do that. And then the rumors became, well, he's going to have a separate Middle East trip to do the same two things, basically, to make an appearance in Israel and grovel in Saudi Arabia. But it'll be its own thing. It'll be a standalone thing. It'll uh, happen in July. And the administration finally made that official after uh, just ridiculously kind of playing coy about it for a couple of weeks. I don't even know why they bothered. But they made it official on Tuesday uh, that Biden will be going to the Middle East uh, July 13th through 16th. He will stop first in Israel... And I think the purpose there, as we'll talk about in a moment, is maybe to uh, buoy Naftali Bennett's That's coalition, which is very. It's not uh, what you hear out in the you. wild. Thank often. you. <laughs> uh, to to kind of give him a political bump. Uh, we'll see whether that works or not. But Bennett is in somewhat dire straits at this point, and uh, then he'll go. He'll make a stop, uh, probably a cursory stop in the West Bank for a meeting with Mahmoud Abbas. I can't imagine he's going to spend a lot of time there. Also, because at this point, his his main concern with that leg of the trip is not showing up Bennett. And then he'll be heading on to Saudi Arabia, where he will attend a summit of a group that's called the GCC plus three. That means the leaders of the Gulf Cooperation Council states, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, uh, the UAE, Qatar, and Oman, plus uh, Egypt, Iraq, and Jordan. Uh, they'll be having a summit in Jeddah. Biden will attend that summit, and then he will have some sort of interaction uh, with Saudi Crown Prince Bon McGraw, uh, or Mohammed bin Salman, I'm sorry. It's unclear at this point how... Official, this interaction is going to be. I would. I mean, I, it's probably going to be uh, just the usual thing where a president goes somewhere and meets with another, uh, in this case, de facto head of state, uh, and they have a big press availability. Well, maybe not a press availability. The press might be a little bit frightened of MBS, but um, you know, they sit down in the chairs, and I mean, you know, you've seen the pictures. The administration is still playing coy. Again, I think 
somewhat absurdly uh, suggesting that maybe they'll just kind of have a chat on the sidelines of the summit and it won't be like an official meeting. But the Saudis are talking about a full-blown official meeting between the two, and I think that's probably what they will get. The goal is basically to entice the Saudis uh, with the gift of uh, U.S. diplomacy, which is uh, one of the interesting (laughs) things that comes with being like a declining a empire is you still, yeah, you treat like just the act of appearing with somebody as like some special treat that you've, you've doled out, which is uh, another kind of absurdity of, of empire. But he's going primarily to try and get the Saudis to agree to open up the oil spigots in the hopes that this would reduce global oil prices and therefore gasoline prices. I think people sometimes lose track of where we are right now in the oil market. Saudi Arabia and the UAE, yes, are the two countries that have spare capacity, but they don't have spare capacity to solve $5 a gallon gasoline. That's also only one part of the problem. The extent to which the Saudis are going to be willing to do this or the extent to which they're even able to do it at this stage of the game is very unclear. Um, The OPEC plus Block did announce, I think earlier this month, that they were going to increase production um, by something like 65, 650,000 barrels of oil per day, which was, which was up from what their plan had been to, to increase it by something like four 450,000 barrels per day. Uh, so that was a little bit of a concession. It's not much of one. And even that increase, you know, there's, there's some questions about whether the members of the bloc, uh, not necessarily the Saudis, but some of the other members can actually meet a quota at that level. A lot of these countries, you know, Iraq and others, uh, their their infrastructure is in tatters. They don't have a lot of money to put into uh, rebuilding. So there's questions about whether they can actually meet a higher quota anyway. I guess the idea is even if even if this is something the Saudis can't do, just getting Mohammed bin Salman to say something about increasing production will be enough to lower global prices and you know that'll that'll somehow last until the election uh, in November in the US but uh, I'm 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 dubious about that. Biden will presumably offer some security some additional security guarantees as part of his effort to sweet talk this out. We love security um, but, guarantees. We love you know, giving yeah, security guarantees. Uh, you know and hopefully he won't announce anything at a level that emboldens the Saudis to resume the war in Yemen which is I think is the big fear. Uh, sort of worst case scenario of what could come out of this. So um, there's also been a lot of developments in the Israeli coalition story that we discussed last week. So maybe you could give an update on that. So uh, one of the members of Bennett's uh, Yamina party, uh, far right, very pro-settlement, you know, anti-Palestinian party, uh, announced on Monday that he is quitting the coalition over uh, what we talked about, mostly over, I think, what we talked about last week, uh, which was the failure to pass an extension of, of special legal status for the settlements, um, uh, which, you know, really has the coalition kind of uh, leering about at this point. The Knesset minister, the, mem- the member of uh, Yamina who quit, uh, Nir Orbach, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that name, uh, he did say he would not support a confidence vote, a no confidence vote against Bennett's government. So he's not going to join the opposition or Benjamin Netanyahu and try to bring the coalition down. But his departure leaves Bennett now with 59 seats uh, under his control in a 120 seat legislature. You don't have to have my gift for doing simple math problems, uh, which I needed a calculator most of the time. Uh, but you don't have to, you don't have to go to the calculator to realize that that's not a majority. Uh, it makes, it's, it's not even half at this point. It's going to make passing any kind of legislation 
very difficult for Bennett. Um, so what seems to be happening here to me, I think, uh, my interpretation is not that the coalition is suddenly going to fall apart, but it's like death by a thousand cuts. Uh, they can't pass this important bill. They lose their bleeding members here and there as they, you know, as individual members of the coalition decide that they really can't hang with this very ideologically incoherent group that they've assembled. So uh, it doesn't look good for the coalition. I suspect that part of Biden's rationale for going to the Middle East, and in addition to the Saudi like, he's stopping in Israel to appear on television. Again, this is sort of the sense that just having a U.S. president kind of pat you on the head is is a special treat that helps uh, these leaders. But he definitely, Biden definitely does not want Benjamin Netanyahu to return to power, which is one possible outcome if the coalition collapses. So he's going to try to shore up Bennett. Um, we've seen in, in recent weeks the administration do some things to kind of take some pressure off the Israeli government. For example, uh, they had been talking, basically since Biden came into office, uh, they had been talking about restoring the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem as a separate institution outside of the embassy. The consulate was, for a long time, the, the outlet for handling power. Palestinian consular issues uh, until the Trump administration basically closed it down. They've now backed off of that somewhat. They're not going to open a, a separate consulate. They're going to, you know, leave Palestinian consular services inside the embassy, but kind of change the bureaucratic structure. That that doesn't change the fact that most Palestinians are not going to go into the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem to to get their consular business done. That's a a red line for a lot of people. But you know, there's that. There's this sort of foot dragging on the Iran deal. I think there's a, a sense of like. We want to protect Bennett to some degree. We don't want to embarrass him. Uh, that's why I don't think this this stopover in the West Bank is going to amount to anything, because we don't want to do anything that uh, would make Bennett look bad and risk, you know, kind of destabilizing him even further. So why don't we move to Africa and talk about the um, M23 conflict in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, and then also the tensions that have been arising with Rwanda. So M23, uh, the M23 militia, if people are not familiar and, and, you know, we can, I can only really talk about, uh, what's happening. I can't tell you, uh, any of the deeper, deeper issues. This is actually, uh, something we're working to, to put together an episode on, uh, or an interview. Uh, but the M23 militia is a predominantly Tutsi, uh, or wholly Tutsi, uh, militant group that emerged in the Eastern DRC, kind of in the wake of the, you know, Rwandan genocide. I mean, it didn't really emerge until 2012 as a as a full on fighting force. But the issues, you know, the genocide kind of uh, in Rwanda pushed a large number of Hutus out of that country. It's the, the genocidaires, basically, uh, the people who were responsible for the genocide. And then, you know, Tutsi kind of, you know, Tutsi groups of armed groups emerged in in response to that, and it sort of created, uh, you know, a relatively. And you had the Congo Wars, uh, all these things. You know, uh, we really need to to I think have somebody on who could talk about them in depth. But the M twenty three emerged in twenty twelve captured a number of towns and military bases uh, in the eastern DRC, especially in North Kivu province. Within less than a year, their resistance kind of petered out. Uh, they negotiated a peace deal with the Congolese government that, in part, uh, one of its facets was that M23 fighters would be incorporated in the Congolese security forces. That part of the deal in particular has never been implemented. Uh, and so, 
uh, here we are, you know, 10 years later and M23 has reemerged. Uh, it's captured a number of villages or attacked a number of villages and towns, military bases. They captured a town called Bunagana. I apologize if I'm butchering that uh, earlier this week, uh, which lies close to the Ugandan border in North Kivu province, very strategically located border town. So they reemerged in a very big way. The protesters and Congo's government blame Rwanda for being behind a recent series of attacks in Congo by the M23 rebel group. Uh, the reason why this is generating tension is because, you know, going back to 2012, the Congolese government has always asserted that Rwanda is backing M23 and has been supporting them, providing arms and training and, you know, whatnot. Uh, there's even a, been a rumor now or a sort of allegation that uh, in, you know, I think uh, two or three weeks ago, Congolese authorities suggested that the Rwandans had sent like 500 special forces into the Eastern DRC and, you know, uh, covertly, uh, but they were there now, like, you know, advising, training, maybe fighting alongside uh, these M23 fighters. And so the Congolese even even went so far when when Bunagana when the report came out that Bunagana Ghana had fallen to the M23 the Congolese interpretation of this would, was that Bunagana is now in possession of the Rwandan army um, they've alleged that Rwandan forces on the other side of the border are firing artillery rockets that type of thing into the eastern DRC to support M23 the Rwandans for their part deny that there's any uh, connection between them and M23 they've alleged that the DRC is kind of unprovoked firing uh, its own artillery across the border so the potential here not just to further destabilize eastern the eastern DRC which is already a very uh, unstable region that's that's largely you know at, at any given time outside the Congolese government's control but there is a, a a, a potential here for this to escalate into some kind of conflict between the DRC and Rwanda, you know, which would probably pull in other countries in the region. I think Kenya's president, Uhuru Kenyatta, called for a regional peacekeeping force to be put in place in the eastern DRC, but we'll see how that, uh, that was just yesterday, Wednesday, I believe he made that call. So we'll see what, uh, what happens with that. So let's move to the uh, French parliamentary election, and there was the first round of these elections. So what was the result, and what does it seem is going on over in France? So Sunday was the first round uh, of the French parliamentary election. We won't know the results until after this coming Sunday's second round. You get a lot of runoffs and uh, you know candidates that uh, go into head-to-head phases. Uh, before the before everything is settled, what's clear coming out of the first round is that uh, Emmanuel Macron's coalition, which is technically called Ensemble uh, or Ensemble, uh, I prefer to call it the Get Back Down in the Salt Mine Grandpa Coalition, they are in danger of losing their parliamentary majority. So you need two hundred eighty nine seats. Uh, for a majority in the the French Assembly, the lower house of parliament. They're now projected, uh, the last projection I saw following the first round was they were projected to take anywhere from 255 to 295 seats. Uh, So there is a chance they could hang on to their sole majority, but not looking great. It seems like a greater chance that they're going to fall short. Partly this is due to the emergence or the, the you know, performance of uh, the leftist bloc, which is the new ecologic and social people's union, which is led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, a former presidential candidate who would like very much to be prime minister. I don't think he's going to get 
his wish fulfilled. But the, that block actually outperformed in, in total percentage of the vote, outperformed Macron slightly. They finished with a little over 26% of the vote. Uh, Macron's block got a little under 26%. Because of the way these the elections are structured, because of the you know regions and the uh, kind of you know specific ridings or seats, uh, the projection for the leftist block is not as favorable as it is for Ensemble. They're expected to get somewhere around 200. I think if they finish with 200 seats or, or more, that, that would be considered uh, a successful outcome for them at this point. That's what the projections seem to say. They can, however, be, you know, if they do well enough, prevent Ensemble from having a, 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 an outright majority, which means Macron will have to settle for either sort of an ad hoc hung parliament type of situation where he has to uh, do the work to appeal to, you know, whichever group looks most likely on any given piece of legislation, or he could try to form uh, some sort of broader ad hoc coalition to to keep a, a stable majority in that case. Uh, I suspect he would probably reach out to conservatives, the Republican Party, and there are a couple of other smaller conservative parties, not not the far right parties, the the Marine Le Pen types, but the the more mainstream conservatives who are not doing well, but would probably have enough seats to offer him to allow him to to have a functional majority, even if it's a bit more unwieldy than just uh, having a sole majority with his coalition. Uh, so that's where things stand. Like I said, we won't know until uh, after this coming Sunday's second round, actually, how things play out. And so why don't we finish up with an update on what's been going on in Ukraine? So on the ground, uh, there's not much new to report. The fighting continues to focus on Severodonetsk in, uh, in Luhansk province. Russian forces uh, were, I think last week we said they were in about, uh, the estimates where they were in, uh, controlled about 70% of the city. Now it's, it sounds like they control about 80%. Uh, so they haven't advanced much uh, over the last week. They have advanced, it seems, a little bit. There is a, a somewhat dismaying repeat of something that happened as Mariupol, if you recall, was falling to Russian forces, which is there are hundreds of civilians and some untold number of combatants holed up in a uh, an industrial plant, the Azot uh, chemical plant in the city. Uh, it's unclear whether they can get out at this point or whether they've been surrounded. Uh, the Russians have destroyed all three bridges crossing the Donetsk River uh, that connects Severodonetsk uh, to its kind of sister city, uh, Lysyshansk, which makes, you know, evacuating, it makes it hard for the, the Ukrainians uh, to bring any aid into the, the combatants that are still fighting in Severodonetsk. And it also makes evacuating almost impossible to get, uh, to get civilians out at this point, unless you open up some kind of corridor that would take them into Russian-controlled territory. And the Russian forces and the the sort of donbass fighters have offered uh i think wednesday and then again uh, on thursday as we're recording this uh, they've offered a couple of times to open up such a corridor but uh, it hasn't come to fruition uh, it's unclear whether they're actually consulting with the ukrainians about this or just sort of making public statements so that that situation is you know a little bit more grim for the people in in severodonetsk there's probably 10 to 12,000 people still in the city in addition to you know or, uh, including the uh, hundreds that are that are in the chemical plant so they, it's a little grimmer for them. The real movement has come, or the real kind of news has come in the international sphere where you had, um, for example, NATO defense ministers meeting in Brussels uh, this week. The, these meetings always kind of 
result in more pledges of weaponry. And this was no exception. The Biden administration on Wednesday uh, pledged another $1 billion in military aid, uh, howitzers, anti-ship missiles, ammunition. Um, Other countries, other NATO members, Canada, Poland, Slovakia, Germany uh, all announced uh, new pledges of their own. Uh, a lot of these don't seem to be going, f- getting fulfilled. Uh, I saw some wild number that suggested only about 10% of the weapons Ukraine's been promised have actually gotten to Ukraine. So that's, uh, from the Ukrainian perspective, probably not good. Speaking of Germany, uh, the other big news this week, I guess, was that uh, Macron, uh, along with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi, uh, all uh, dropped by Kiev on Thursday to say hi to Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, this is interesting because all three of those leaders have gotten into some hot water uh, in uh, over the last few weeks for what Zelensky would term kind of being soft on Russia. Uh, and of course, Zelensky is the, the West's great hero now, so running afoul of him is not great uh, from a PR perspective. But how much appetite is there back in their own countries in supporting Ukraine so openly, especially with the rising economic cost of the war for various reasons Zelensky's you know irritated with Schultz because Germany has dragged its feet on sending weapons uh, he's irritated with Macron because Macron continues to have these kind of fruitless phone conversations with uh, Vladimir Putin and then and it's sort of been talking openly about Ukraine having to uh, surrender some territory to get a get a peace deal done uh, Draghi also kind of Italy you know Italy is sort of uh, on that fence too on that sort of same point talking about what a peace deal might look like. Uh, and Zelensky has obviously been, you know, very uh, steadfast about somehow recovering all of Ukraine's territory. So these three all went to Kiev to kind of demonstrate their support for, for Ukraine and their bona fides. Um, it's an interesting political dynamic, I think, because, you know, from Zelensky's point of view, I think he's starting to run into some war weariness in the West. Polling in Germany, some polling in the United States even suggests that people are no longer uh, in that sort of flush of the initial war where they're like, yeah, just send send them everything and sanction Russia and who cares what happens to the economy. They're, they're not uh, so gung-ho about that anymore. And there are growing numbers of people in, in these countries that would like to see the war stop causing food prices to rise and gas prices to rise. Uh, so they'd like to see some kind of end to the conflict, which which changes the political calculus somewhat for for uh, somebody like Schultz. And, and uh, I mean, Macron just got reelected, so he doesn't have to worry about it so much. Uh, but Draghi, whose coalition is, you know, uh, in danger of failing at any given moment, even Joe Biden, who's got to worry about uh, the November election, the political calculus changes a little bit as these uh, as the public as public sentiment shifts on on just how far uh, how much we're prepared to sacrifice to to support Ukraine. So, Derek, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the beginning of the war, weren't Democrats claiming that this would be a boon to them during the midterms? Um, I I don't I don't remember uh, that. Anyway, it seems like it was eight years ago, and I've lost my my. Uh, <laughs> knowledge of that but i that sounds right i mean this sort of you know the chance to you know be tough yeah, they rally and, around uh, the flag rally around the, thing, the ukrainian flag at least right. um the other thing i should mention on the sanctions uh, note there was a piece in bloomberg this week um that cited uh, some biden administration officials that's the actual term that they used so nobody was talking for uh, on the record uh but apparently they're starting to think that 
golly, these Western sanctions aren't really affecting the Russian government's behavior. They're just sort of punishing ordinary Russians, uh, particularly insofar as they've caused a lot of Western companies to sort of self withdraw, kind of you know, pull themselves out of the Russian market, even if they were in no danger of, um, you know, kind of running afoul of sanctions. They've left anyway, which has caused a lot of logistical and even just kind of quality of life declines uh, in Russia. This is a shock, I'm sure, to anybody who hasn't paid any attention to how Western sanctions have worked in Venezuela, in Iran, uh, in North Korea, pretty much anywhere else that they've been applied in this kind of uh, holistic way. Uh, they always work this way. They always punish the ordinary citizens and leave the, the elites somewhat untouched. Uh, they always cause companies to overreact and, you know, kind of cut all ties or all contact with the country in question because they're afraid of running afoul of sanctions, even if uh, they're not in, you know, technically in any danger of doing so. Uh, so, you know, uh, golly, who could have predicted this, you know, pretty much anybody could have predicted that this is how it would happen. Uh, but uh, we did it anyway. Thank you, Derek. And we'll see everyone next time. Bye. Hello, everyone. Producer Jake here. Before we get into our interview, just a couple of quick plugs. The first is for another podcast, Best of the Left. Uh, Best of the Left is really cool. Their free episodes are actually aggregated clips from independent media or kind of left-leaning mainstream media, and they're hyper-focused on just one topic. So as opposed to American Prestige, where I sprinkle little clips in the news section or maybe some documentary clips in our ongoing bonus series, Best of the Left free episodes are entirely composed of audio from not only journalists, but activists as well. So check them out. Best of the left. The other thing I want to plug is us, our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Come sign up for the free list. We don't just do podcasts. We do video now, discussion threads, and we have plans for other cool stuff. And we're now offering a free two-week trial for our bonus content. So you can dig through all the archives. You can take part in the uh, next mailbag if you're a bonus subscriber, etc., etc. So, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Check it out. Okay, enjoy the interview. Uh, hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. Uh, with uh, with me, as always, uh, is my co-host and partner, Danny Bessner. Uh, and we're very lucky to be joined by Lissandro Claudio, uh, assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of Liberalism and the Post-Colony, Thinking the State in 20th Century Philippines. Uh, we're very grateful. We're hoping that this will be the first of uh, a few episodes maybe to come. Uh, where we talk about the relationship between the Philippines and the United States and the history of that. Uh, but for now, we're going to focus on contemporary events in the Philippines and particularly political events. So, uh, Professor Claudio, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Daniel. Why don't we start, since there is a presidential transition uh, happening here in a couple of weeks uh, with Ferdinand Marcos Jr. or Bong Bong, uh, Marcos, uh, taking yep. over for a friend of the pod, Rodrigo Duterte, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe going to be the third mic. I don't know. I don't want to spoil anything, but, uh, you know, he's going to be out of work soon. Uh, why don't we s start with a little, uh, retrospective on the Duterte presidency. And I think we need to do that in objective terms, but we also need to do it in sort of a, you know, how did he fare by his own, standards, the standards that he, he set out. So 
Lissandra, maybe you could start us off with a, a discussion of where Duterte emerged from in terms of Philippine politics and when he was running for president, when he was pursuing that office, what were, were his aims? What was what was the goal that he, you know, what were the goals that he set out for a Duterte presidency? So Rodrigo Duterte was elected in 2016. He was a dark horse candidate um, and he won by a significant pl- plurality. Sometime in mid-2016 or late 2015, I was asked, what do you think the odds are of Rodrigo Duterte winning the presidency? And I said, I think he barely has a shot. And the reason why I was thinking that way is the same reason why a lot of people didn't think Trump was going to win the president presidency in the United States. He was just too unconventional. And he was a mayor. He wasn't a national politician. He was the mayor of a very prominent city in Mindanao, Davao City. But still, mayors don't necessarily win as presidents of the Philippines. But then he won largely because of, because he set the agenda. He turned the discussion of the election into a discussion about peace and order, particularly drugs. There's lots of um, crystal meth coming. There was lots and still lots of crystal meth coming into the Philippines or Shabu. And, that, and he ran on that platform. And a lot of people were also at that time frustrated with the liberal administration of then-President Benigno Aquino III. And his main campaign promise was that he would get rid of drugs within three to six months. Of course, it's a campaign promise that failed. Nonetheless, despite the major... You're telling me he didn't get rid of all drugs in three to six months? Yeah. I just don't want to believe that. I don't know. I'm not buying it. There was actually... It turns out out he did. Oh my God, he's going to say turns out he actually... There was another campaign... (laughs) (laughs) There was another campaign promise which he kind of fulfilled. He said he would fatten up the fish in Manila Bay with the bodies of dead drug drug dealers and drug pushers. Oh my God. And um, I don't know how fat the fish are in Manila Bay these days. But definitely thousands upon thousands of suspected drug dealers and uh, users were killed in Duterte's war on drugs. He said he wasn't just going to address the supply side of the drug problem. He was going to address the demand side of the drug problem, which meant he was going to kill people. And he accomplished that. Um, The other, so that's an accomplishment. Um, He ends his term as one of the most popular presidents in Philippine history. He has something like the last survey, he was like, Above ninety percent approval, and uh, it's the and, and it's that it's that's one of the reasons why there's a continuity candidate who's filling his position in the presidential palace, in the form in the guise of Fernand Marcos Jr. Let's talk. I want to talk a little bit more about the war on drug users, um, and, and particularly uh, as you say, he's dropped a lot of bodies, um, uh-huh. and the, the sheer number of bodies you know, makes it clear that these were not just drug dealers. There are drug users that are, that are, have been getting killed in this, in this uh, so-called war on drugs. But as you say, it's done, I, I think, very little to actually stop or impede uh, the flow of drugs into the Philippines, the, the use of drugs in the Philippines. I'm curious, given that he ran, he made such a focus, such an emphasis on the drug war, what explains his popularity now given that there's no, first of all, that, that the campaign was so violent, and second of all, that it doesn't, the violence doesn't seem to have done the job in terms of reducing uh, the drug problem. He actually toned down some of the violence in the second half of his presidency, at least with respect to drug criminals, and then started focusing on suspected communists. So it was still violent, 
but a lot of the violence are, violence started happening in the countryside, and that was underreported in the media because there aren't as many news reporters in the countryside. So, so that's one thing. The other thing is that people, I think, just want someone who is going to discipline democracy. This is a term from Marco Garrido of the University of uh, Chicago. And regardless of the effects of the actual drug war, whether or not it's curbed the number of drug users, what's important in the eyes of many Filipinos is he's disciplining the unruly Filipino. Let's talk a little bit about, the, well, actually, before I get into to China and the U.S., uh, can you talk a little bit about Duterte's presidency on the domestic side, apart from the drug war and what he has done or failed to do or, or and, even and, just from a basic level what's his social base yeah you like, know who, who, who supports who him you know for people are, for uh, unnamed people yeah. who might not well know at, that at 90 at 90 percent it's <laughs> damn saying. near everybody so yeah, i'm not yeah, sure yeah. that we yeah we need it turns to out everyone that much. <laughs> um but yeah just sort of talk about his presidency at the at the domestic level yeah the way i've tried to parse this is i, I tried to look at the exit polls from 2016 because this gives you an idea of who were the initial who were the initial people who supported Duterte. Because he was a pl plurality president. Because we never have majority presidents in the Philippines until now, um, and the support base seems to be the kind of middle. It's a kind of middle class support base. Um, and what I suspect is that this is a new precarious middle class because the Philippine economy has been growing steadily since the 1980s, ever since the end of that you know tumultuous decade when you had the kind of the economic crash that began um, with the Volcker adjustment in the U.S. And we were part of a kind of lost decade of the 1980s. So the economy has grown since then, and the middle class has grown since then. And that middle class, I think, is a kind of precarious middle class. It thinks that it, it, it's comfortable. On the one hand, it's comfortable. Or on the other hand, it's such a new middle class that it always feels vulnerable. So I think that's the kind of middle class base that initially supported Duterte. But yes, at above 90%, everybody supports Duterte. So the, the base of Rodrigo Duterte is the Philippines. But that's interesting. You can see in a sort of middle class, like law and order type of candidate appealing in that, in that way. But what has he done, if anything, in terms of supporting social programs or, you know, Philippine business? Like, I'm, I'm curious about some of the other aspects of the presidency and whether those have, I mean, obviously he's, hmm. you know, people like what he's done. Most people like yeah. what he's done. But I'm curious, what explains that rise from plurality candidate to 90% support? Is it just the kind of publicity of the drug campaign or what, what else is going on there? Well, here's the, here's the thing. Uh, I hate to say this, but social spending has actually increased under the Duterte administration. And that's been a steady increase. That's one thing. Um, some of that social spending was a continuation of some of the policies of the Aquino administration, like, for example, conditional tra cash transfers for the very, very poor. There was a tax reform bill that he instituted, I think, in 2018, which cut middle class taxes. And that was good for everyone, include, for a lot of people, including me. Um, there was a, he, he passed the universal health care bill. It's going to be very difficult to implement that, but nevertheless, he passed it. Um, he passed a universal tertiary education bill. Um, I, I'm, I, I quibble with that, but still, that's a, that's a kind of populist bill that, that hues obviously to the left. And so Duterte is, is, is a kind of enigma because it's very difficult to package him as exclusively just a right-wing figure because his social spending is interesting. Um, when he came into office, he also promised, or his finance minister promised, that he would end 
the disease of underspending that occurred during the uh, Aquino administration. So you have a, a president that, at least on paper, promised to be fiscally bold. That's interesting. So, yeah, there's a kind of, I mean, there's a very populist, it seems, you know, kind of you, you, you combine the uh, right wing law and order with a more leftist, at least on paper, kind of commitment to spending. Uh, it's an interesting mix. And uh, would you situate Duterte in sort of the universe or the pantheon of, uh, you compared him to Trump earlier, but people like uh, Victor Orban and sort of the, this this kind of right, alt-right, if you will, or whatever people are calling it these days, kind of populist uh, international type of governance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, is that a real thing? Because just to be honest, I've been extraordinarily skeptical about that framing because it seems to me like classic liberal international order Manichaean divisions. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is a, a, a genuine global trend. Well, one thing is, is Duterte doesn't care about these trends, really. He's he's focused on the domestic. And so far as he comments on these global trends, he'll say things. He'll say provocative things like, Putin is my idol. And then you ask him, why is he your idol? He'll just say, well, he's my idol. Um, yeah, he's and of just course, a troll. Yeah, he's a bit of a troll. Yeah, and also um, he's kind of very close to everybody knows that he's kind of very close to China, but I'm not entirely sure if that closeness is ideological or whether or not it's a kind of marriage of convenience. Because the the interest of the Chinese government and the Philippines is really just to ensure that the Philippines does not challenge their claims to the Spratly Islands. And the other major interest of China, of course, is that the U.S. be prevented from using the Philippines as a kind of launching pad for a war in Taiwan. So, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's a very restricted uh, cooperation between Duterte and the Chinese. Um, and I'd say the same thing possibly about Ferdinand Marcos Jr., I want to talk about that uh, next, but I'm, I'm actually kind of curious whether you think that this you know, Danny described him as a troll, which I think is is accurate. There's some trolling instincts there uh, on Duterte's part. I remember his, you know, very colorful uh, language about Barack Obama that got him a lot of yeah, press yeah. in the U.S. Um, do you, I mean, do you think that's authentically him, or is that a is that a political thing? Is that a, a come on? I know he has not liked the U the U.S. since his days as mayor of Davao City, and he comes from a kind of generation of nationalist. Filipino baby boomer that thinks that the USCIA is behind everything that happens in the Philippines. It's kind of it's kind of half justified because in the mid 20th century, when the foreign policy establishment in the United States still had memories of the Philippines being a colony of the United States, there were a lot of CIA operatives in the Philippines. But that's how he thinks. That's his kind of paranoia. So let's talk about the the kind of balancing act between China and the U.S. And, and Duterte seemed to go more toward China. Um, I think to get into this, uh, uh, the, the most appropriate way is maybe if you could uh, explain to people uh, the situation in, you mentioned the Spratleys, sort of the South China Sea uh, dispute between uh, the Philippines and China, which has gone to international bodies to know uh, real effect, but they've ruled in the Philippines' favor. Yeah. Um, uh, talk a little bit about that background and that backdrop, which was happening, you know, before Duterte took over. Yeah. So that that case, that very important case, Philippines versus China, or the South China Sea arbitration, it was a case brought by the Philippines to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, uh, the, the arbitral tribunal in in The Hague, and the Philippines won that case. China was not party to that case. 
And so it was more of a symbolic victory. And that was a victory on the part of former President Benigno Aquino. Um, Duterte, of course, never invoked that. I mean, he's always had that in his back, back, back pocket, um, but he's never invoked that. And Fernand Marcos Jr. is probably not going to invoke that as well. In fact, I was listening to a couple of his interviews, and he said that prior to that ruling, there was a kind of um, modus vivendi between the Philippines and China. And that modus vivendi was kind of ruined by that arbitration. And what, what he wants to do is to go back to that modus vivendi that was the case prior to the arbitration ruling. So, I mean, Duterte comes in with this idea of kind of reaching out toward China, but at the same time, talk a little bit about the background. I don't want to get into the full, you know, kind of um, extent of this because that's, you know, a topic for a whole nother group of episodes, really, not even just one. Um, But talk about the climate in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines uh, when Duterte was elected. Well, when he was elected, it was a very good relationship because this was a relationship between Benigno Aquino Jr. comes from the Liberal Party and Barack Obama. So the Liberal Party, it's difficult to compare, but I guess it's the closest thing we have to a Democratic Party in the Philippines. So there were were good ties between the U.S. president and the Philippine president. And also the Philippine president was perceived as being extremely anti-China and being very pro-U.S., so Duterte kind of appended that on a certain level. However, if you look at the, the foreign policy establishment in the Philippines and the military establishment in the Philippines, a lot of that remains geared towards the United States. So, for instance, the um, Secretary of Defense of Duterte was kind of like a James Mattis figure. Um, at least within the foreign policy establishment in the Philippines, he was considered the, quote, I hate this terminology, right? But he was called the adult in the room. And what that really <laughs> we meant was... We had a lot was, of those when Trump was... Yeah, yeah. And what that really meant was he was like Maddis, right? He was, he was meant to continue the kind of fundamentals of Philippine foreign policy. And what that meant was we would remain close to the United States, even if you had a disruptor in chief as president. Where does that come from? Does that come from sort of the institutional connections between that have that have built up over time between the philippine uh establishment and the united states does it come from a sense of you know even if we want to have better relations with china there is this ongoing dispute over the south china sea that we need to be concerned about and we need the united states as a as a counterweight uh what's the what what keeps that relationship going i guess it's it's really the philippine military um there are joint military exercises between the Philippines and the United States. So there's a, there's a kind of affection there. And in terms of, in, in terms of operabi- interoperability, you have to remember that um, most of the material of the Philippine military historically has come from the United States. So our soldiers are used to using American arms. So for example, when Duterte wanted to buy more arms from Russia, the generals complained immediately because they said this this technology is not going to work with the technology that we have. So that's why there's a kind of foreign policy blob as well in the Philippines that maintains the relationship because the military wants to maintain the relationship. So one question that I have, uh, would you describe that as, as a type of neo-colonial relationship? Um, I, I was just wondering, because for people who might not know, the United States governs Philippi- the Philippines from around 1898-99 until 1946 mm-hmm. as a formal colony, and then Philippine uh, independence happens. But 
Is that relationship a neo-colonial one? How would you describe that? To some extent, it's a it's it's a neo-colonial one, um, and it also depends on who the president is. So, for example, when George W. Bush was the president, it was the time of the war on terror, and there were Muslim insurgents in the South. So that kind of foreign policy narrative was very beneficial for the Philippine military at that time because they were able to obtain even more military aid because they said that what they were doing was extending the war on terror in Southeast Asia. And the way George Bush replied to that was he said, well, the Philippines is a major non-NATO ally and here's the largesse. So yeah, a lot of it is is indeed neocolonial. But at this point, it's not just neocolonial, it's just what people have gotten used to. And that's why it's a kind of foreign policy blob. It's also, I think it also is is more evidence of the power of arms sales, which are not just right, right. for revenue, but they, they, they stick you together. I mean, you're forced to come back to the United States for spare parts, for ammunition, because nothing else works with U.S. made weapons. It's a, it's a right, powerful right. It's tool. an interoperability issue, yeah. yeah right. Absolutely. Right. So just to just to run it down then, to be clear, so the United States is still very interested in having quote-unquote positive relations with the Philippines uh, in order to basically have, like, literally going back to the late 19th century, have a jump, jumping off point into East Asia, broadly speaking, as a place to sell arms to. Um, those are the two major reasons that the United States is interested there. Yes, but that interest has waned since 1992. Um, 1982 is a very important year for the Philippines because you have to remember that when the Philippines got independence from the U.S. in 1946, the, the U.S. maintained two major military bases in the Philippines, Clark Air Base and Subic Naval Base. Now, just to give you an idea, Subic uh, Naval Base was bigger than Singapore. There was a country inside the Philippines, the size of a city-state in the Philippines owned by the U.S. military. Um, and because of uh, a kind of a high point of Philippine nationalism in, in 92, the Filipinos kicked those kick the U.S. out of those particular bases. I think ever since then, the, the United States has just not paid as much attention to the Philippines. Um, so that means, for instance, that when a Secretary of State or a U.S. President goes to Southeast Asia, it's more likely that the first stop will be Jakarta instead of Manila. Um, you know, ever since then, the, the number of um, people in the Philippine desk in the State Department has dwindled, has decreased significantly. So we're no longer the center of geostrategic considerations in Southeast Asia as a result of those bases being pulled out. So then just one question, could you maybe situate the Philippines from a Filipino perspective within the geopolitical context of Southeast Asia? What does the country envision itself as doing? Um, what does the country, you know, see itself? Obviously, yeah. that's a that's a huge question, but just sort of like a, if you could boil it down um, and as it relates to this conversation. Yeah, I mean, during the during the early days of ASEAN style region, regionalization or regionalism, Filipinos used to annoy like the Malaysians, the Thai, because they would usually declare that they weren't Asians or they, at the very least they weren't Southeast Asians. They thought of themselves as kind of, I don't know, like Americans or, or whatever. They weren't Asian because they didn't see their development as part of the Southeast Asian region. Um, and then obviously, but, but they were a founding member of us. We were a founding member of ASEAN because ASEAN is a creation of kind of pro-U.S. forces and the Philippines was always the most pro-U.S. of Southeast Asian countries, actually even until today. So uh, as a kind of tidbit, even if our presidents have pivoted to China, the Philippines is still extremely pro-U.S. In fact, there was a survey, I think 10 years ago, that asked countries, uh, that looked at how pro-U.S. countries were. 
Number two on that list was the United States. Number one was the Philippines. So the Philippines has always seen itself as a kind of appendage to the United States in Southeast Asia. Um, and that's, I think, also why this Duterte pivot to China, Marcos pivot to China is appealing to some people because it breaks that narrative. Do you see the relationship changing again, like going back to one that is uh, where the United States is more interested in the Philippines? I mean, I think about this in terms of the, uh, you know, great new Cold War with China, where uh, there was just an article in the New York Times a couple of days ago about the United States lost Fiji. Oh, my God, we lost Fiji (laughs) to China. Like, I mean, in that context, you can see the Philippines, which is obviously a much larger, more strategic uh, country in the <laughs> same general region, uh, becoming a focal point of, of U.S. foreign policy again. Do you do you envision that uh, you know that that happening, or, or what? Do you, where do you see things going? So, just this week, the Deputy Secretary of State um, was in the Philippines, um, um, Wendy Sherman. So she was in Manila and she had a meeting with President, uh, incoming President Marcos. So, so that's interesting. I think the, the foreign policy establishment is paying more attention to it. Um, uh, there was a group of, I think, six Democrats last month who wrote to Secretary Blinken saying that you basically can't ignore the Philippines anymore, especially because of what happened under the Duterte administration and the Marcos administration. So it's, it's, it's very possible they're going to start focusing on the Philippines much more. And just to put this in perspective, I'm going to say something very Sarah Palin-esque. I've actually seen Taiwan from the Philippines. So it's, it's, it's that close. If you go to the northern tip of the Philippines, you'll see uh, you know, the southern tip of Taiwan. So it's extremely strategic. It kind of straddles Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia. And because of that, I think the United States is going to discover that if it wants to exert geostrategic influence in Southeast Asia, it's going to have to pay attention to the Philippines again. Um, I have this, this is uh, a little bit of a tangent, but you brought up the the war on terror. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the state of that conflict and uh, where things stood, um, you know, when Duterte came into office and what's mm-hmm. happened since then. My recollection, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but was that Duterte came into office uh, you know, and there's been a long-standing sort of separatist movement um, among Muslim uh, peoples in the southern part of Philippines, the Philippines, and he came into office looking to maybe do something about that. You know, establish some autonomy, or maybe you know, kind of kind of bring that that conflict. And but but then you have these more extreme groups, uh, Abu Sayyaf, and and um, you know the the some others that align themselves with Islamic State and uh, formed. You know, one of these uh, regional affiliates, Islamic State, and I guess Southeast Asia. Where where do things stand in terms of the the war on terror and and how Duterte? Uh, what's Duterte's record? Uh, would you say on, in terms of dealing with that? So the mainline Muslim separatist organization in Muslim Mindanao is called the M. Don't, we don't call it the MILF. We call it for for obvious reasons. We call it the <laughs> MILF. Um, <laughs> Oh, come Which on. Is, You're uh, missing an opportunity here. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so, so we, we spell it out, the MILF, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. And I think they've been around since before American Pie. So they, they originated the name. Um, <laughs> um, and, and when Duterte took took power, they were already negotiating a kind of autonomy agreement. Um, and so now what you have in Muslim Mindanao is the 
Bangsamoro Autonomous Region of Muslim Mindanao. And they're going to have parliament, their first ever parliamentary elections in 2025. So it, this is actually a nice, this is actually an optimistic period in the history of the Muslim struggle because there is a chance that they're actually going to be able to set up an autonomous government that that, that has a parliament. Um, and they're very invested in the idea of parliamentary democracy because they're, one of their big critiques of Manila politics is that it's not party-based. So if you have a parliament there, maybe you encourage some kind of parliamentary loyalty. So so it's looking good for Mindanao. Um, having said that, the last election was, a, was, was slightly problematic because the MILF, even if it had negotiated autonomy, they lost poorly in the last election. And most of the people who won in Muslim Mindanao have been the, the traditional warlord clans there. And that's that's a bit scary. Um, and then in terms of like the, the Islamic state aligned groups, is this a, is this continuing to be a, a, a problem? How how big a problem has it been, I guess, is I'm, I'm curious because yeah. they get it gets a lot of headlines because obviously there's the Islamic State connection and that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the U.S. that that generates a lot of uh, of noise. I'm curious to how big an issue it's actually been domestically in the Philippines. Well, yeah, he Duterte's military destroyed uh, a, a major Islamic city as a result of this uh, Marawi city, basically leveled it to the ground because of the because of that threat. Um, and then, of course, he imposed martial law in Mindanao because of, of these particular tensions. So I'm, I'm not saying that things are completely peaceful there, but I am optimistic about the future of a, a kind of autonomous Muslim region in the South. Let's talk a little bit then about, uh, I think it's time to get into moving forward and not looking back, uh, as, as the Obama administration used to say. <laughs> we want to we look forward, not look backward. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the presidential campaign, because uh, it struck me that this was, uh, uh, this did not go the way that President Duterte may have wanted it to go. He wanted, it seemed like he wanted his daughter to run, or he wanted his uh, chief of staff to run, and only kind of grudgingly wound up sort of supporting Marcos after nothing nothing else seemed to work. Talk. Can you talk a little bit about how the campaign went and and sort of the candidates who uh, were rumored and then kind of played around with the idea of running and and how did how did things shake out from Duterte's perspective and and just in general okay so in the middle of uh, 2021 from 2020 until the middle of 2021 the the leading candidate in the surveys was Sara Duterte and everybody thought that Sara Duterte was going to run for president and that she had a good chance of winning because she had she held Mindanao, and her father, of course, had ninety plus percent approval rating. And then I think it was um, October of twenty twenty one when they, when Fernand Marcos announced that Sara Duterte would be running as his vice president. And uh, Rodrigo Duterte and Sara Duterte um, have historically not had a very good relationship, so he was caught off guard. And he started ranting. Um, his biggest rant was that he insinuated that the leading presidential candidate was a cokehead. And everybody took that to mean that he was accusing <laughs> Ferdinand Marcos Jr. of being a cokehead. It was probably the only time I cheered for Rodrigo Duterte in my entire life. Um, so I, I think the reason why he was frustrated was because, um, and, and to some extent I understand him, is because he thought his daughter was the better candidate. He thought his daughter was the more charismatic candidate. I think Sara Duterte does have some of her father's charisma, and, and, and people like her. She's a very likable person. 
Um, she kind of passes your your politician's beer test, where, whereas Fernand Marcos Jr. is kind of a, he's 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 elite, he's kind of bratty, and so that's what that's what really frustrated the old man Duterte. And so his first move was to rant. His second move was to ask his kind of stooge to run for president, but who was his stooge Bongo was very unpopular, so he had to back out. And Duterte ended up not supporting anyone for president. So this is the first time an outgoing president has not supported a presidential candidate. I mean, it took a while for him to actually even congratulate Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Um, I think last week was the first time he he said something um, that was very supportive of Ferdinand Marcos Jr. He said, you know, we should all support um, the incoming president. It took him weeks. It took him weeks, yeah. uh, close to a month before he said anything good about the incoming president. That's interesting. Uh, why do you think Sarah Duterte opted to run for vice president instead? Was this a, I don't know how common this is for, uh, since the, since Philippine presidents and vice presidents are elected separately, which is how you get Lenny Robredo being <laughs> the yeah. number one Duterte critic as vice president um, in the country. Uh, is this kind of relationship common where, where people try to form kind of tickets, not in the traditional sense that we might understand them in the U.S., but alliances where I'll run for president and you run for vice president? Or is that, a, is that unusual? Yeah, it's, it's very common. I mean, this was the strategy of Ferdinand Marcos Sr., when he ran for president, he made sure that his vice president was the most wealthy oligarch in the country, so that he, so that you could not outflank him financially. Um, uh, the other strategy here is, of course, a kind of geographic strategy because because the, the addition game in the Philippines is always about geography. So Ferdinand Marcos has always been the leader of the so-called solid North. Um, just a quick joke here. When when Duterte accused him of being a cokehead, there were Twitter memes calling it the solid snort. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. But but okay. So he's the Marcoses have always dominated the solid north, and then the Romualdez family. This is the family of Imelda Marcos. They're from the Visayas, so they kind of control the center of the country, if you if you like, or a certain segment of the center. And then now the Dutertes, of course, are the biggest name in Mindanao politics because they come from Davao. So when uh, when Sar Duterte joined the Marcos campaign, he start he became the number one candidate in Mindanao. Prior to that, actually, the number one candidate in Mindanao was Sar Duterte, and then after Sar Duterte was Manny Pacquiao, because Manny Pacquiao is from Mindanao. And he's a hero in Mindanao. And Ferdinand Marcos was a distant third in the surveys in Mindanao. But when Sarah Duterte became his vice president, he skyrocketed the number one in Mindanao. He never, he never lost that lead. So you can really say that Sarah Duterte delivered Mindanao for Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Um, but going back to the initial question, why did um, Sarah Duterte slide down to vice president? It was largely, people think, because of advice from former president Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, who was mm. the president in for for most of the 2000s and she she's one of the most unpopular figures in contemporary Philippine politics because there were many corruption scandals during her presidency but she's remained one of the most important operators in Philippine politics and he she brokered that agreement and and the mm. reason why I think she was able to successfully broker that agreement is because all of these kind of traditional political parties uh, families rather have become so afraid of the Liberal Party because the last time the Liberal Party was in power, it sent um, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo to jail. 
And so they were afraid that if the Liberal Party would again ascend to power, that they would send Rodrigo Duterte to jail, that they would open up cases against the Marcoses again. And so you had, or, or the Estradas, uh, the, the f- former president, jo- Joseph Estrada. So you, what you had in, in, in the election of Ferdinand Marcos was a coalescing of all the biggest political families in, in the Philippines, um, coalescing in order to defeat the Liberal Party. Everybody's kind of putting their skeletons in one closet, so to speak. That's absolutely, absolutely. That's I mean, so so just to give you an idea of what the coalition is, you have you have there the Arroyos, uh, the family of President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, the Estradas, the family of former President um, um, Joseph Estrada, of course the Marcoses, the Dutertes, and then the Villar family. This this is this is the most successful rent-seeking family in the Philippines. They're uh, they're a real estate slash political family. That's very interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about Ferdinand Marcos Jr. And I'm I'm curious, before we even get into his background, what is the Marcos? I mean, obviously, it can't be that bad. He just won election. But what is the Marcos legacy in the Philippines, you know, coming, uh, stemming from his his dad's uh, rather interesting time in power? And, and uh, you know, what do people look back on did they look back fondly on on his record or is it more complicated what uh what's the the sense in in the philippines well for 30 years from 1986 until 2016 there were the bad guys of philippine politics and that's because philippine politics was dominated by the kind of what i call the people power narrative and the people power narrative is the narrative surrounding the fall of marcos in 86 that was kind of the, the bloodless revolution called the People Power Revolution that led to the fall of Marcos. After that, of course, he flees to Hawaii and then he dies in Hawaii. And from 1986 onwards, you had that kind of people power narrative, people power system. And the way it constructed itself was that we now have a democracy and we've ended authoritarian rule because we've gotten rid of the big evil that was Marcos. But from 2010 onwards, you, you, you kind of see the fraying of that narrative, kind of like alternative histories coming up. And I first thought about these alternative histories as kind of similar to the alt-right. In other words, in 2010, when I was seeing YouTube videos of people saying that Marcos was the best president, that he wasn't a crook, that there weren't really human rights violations under the Marcos regime, I thought it was I thought these ideas were fringe ideas. I didn't really feel the need to even respond to these ideas because I just thought that they that they made no, no sense and that no right-thinking Filipino would actually countenance these ideas. Well, I was very, very wrong. Um, of course, now that narrative has completely flipped and those people who believe in the kind of narrative of democratic restoration from 86 onwards were now on the defensive and were now the, were, were now the people that nobody wants to listen to. So, uh, give people a sense of, of because I, I felt like reading coverage of the campaign, you got very little information in terms of Ferdinand Jr.'s background or even like a platform or a, a, a sort of ideology that he was running behind. It seemed like, from from this remove, admittedly, it seemed like a somewhat content-free campaign in a sense. Uh, but can you tell people a little bit about his background and, and where he comes from politically and, and sort of what, you know, what he's talked about trying to achieve as president? Well, I mean, he thinks of himself as a kind of prince. So if you look at his website, he begins his political career in his teenage years where he was deputized by his father to go around the world and negotiate treaties on behalf or agreements on behalf of the Philippine Republic. Um, 
So he thinks that he's been groomed for this particular job. In terms of ideology, I mean, yes, you're right, it's extremely vague. But when you look at economic, the economic policy of the Marcoses, they're always hinting at the possibility of an East Asian-style developmental state. So this is not, this family has never been a physically conservative family. And I think that's part of the appeal. So for example, when Ferdinand Mark, when, when the outgoing finance secretary of Rodrigo Duterte says, we're, we're buried in debt, we have such a big deficit, maybe we need to privatize certain industries. Ferdinand Marcos says, I, I, I'm generally hesitant to privatize things. Um, in, terms of, in terms of debt, he's one of the most He's one of the least conservative politicians with respect to debt because his father was not very conservative with respect to debt. So, so now, for instance, in the Philippines, um, you know, we're, I think we're at 60% debt to GDP ratio, which is not so bad. But for, for Filipinos, that's, that's the end of the world. You know, we have a, we have a baked in narrative of austerity in the Philippines. And one of the few candidates actually challenged that was Ferdinand Marcos Jr. So here's the interesting thing about the, about Fernand Marcos Jr., the economics are not conservative, and yet the because um, this kind of, these kind of fiscally bold ideas have been associated with Fernand Marcos, um, the left has derided fiscally uh, fiscally bold ideas because they've been associated with the bogeyman of the left. Um, just to give you an example, um, a group called there's a group in the Philippines, a great group called the Freedom from Debt Coalition. In the United States, a group like that would obviously be coded as libertarian. In the Philippines, it's a, it's a kind of left-wing organization that has a history of fighting the Marcos regime. Interesting. Does he, even though they, they don't seem to get along personally, I mean, does he mirror Duterte in this sense, in the sort of combination of maybe a uh, an authoritarian trapping, the sense of, you know, he's a He's a prince, which I imagine is going to translate into, I don't really need to you know, govern according to the rule book. I can do what I want. Uh, versus this kind of you know, willingness to spend and uh, you know, on, an, on the fiscal side being, being something that you would, you would be more inclined to place on the left in another context. Yes, Duterte talked a big game about spending, but when the pandemic happened, actually he refused to spend. Um, in hmm. fact, his finance minister said, when, when there was a bipartisan bill in the lower house, um, a huge spending bill, it was rejected by Duterte's finance minister because he said, we need to keep our powder dry. Effectively, he was saying, we need to save this money or our credit rating for a rainy day. And people are like, uh, if this is not a rainy day, I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, this so, is the rainy day. Hello. Yeah, so 2020 was like the year where we had our worst economic contraction since World War II. And what that told me was that the Duterte administration was willing to talk a big game about spending, but when the opportunity presented itself, it refused to. It was it ended up becoming just as conservative as its predecessors. So this this is the thing about the Marcos administration. It could also talk a big game about spending, but ultimately, when the spending needs to happen, it's it might just end up li- listening to credit rating agencies and may prefer to protect its credit rating over actually doing something about. The, the problems um, that the Philippines is in. I just have a quick question. Do you think that the rise of Marcos and Duterte suggests anything about Filipino political culture and, and particularly a transformation in Filipino political culture? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think, well, the data bears this out. Uh, there's been an increase in the number. I don't, I don't have the exact numbers, but there's an increase, been an increase in the number of Filipinos who believe that 
um, president should take on extra democratic measures to discipline society. For instance, there's been a, an increase in nostalgia for the martial law years or military rule under Fred Marcos Jr. And of course, the, the, the key word that's really circulating in various spaces in the Philippines, online dinner party conversations, is discipline. That, that has been the organizing narrative of the Philippines since Duterte won in 2016. The Philippines needs to be disciplined, or democracy needs to be disciplined. I think, I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm curious to see what happens is in terms of Marcos taking over this balancing act with the U.S. and China, which seems like it's going to be uh, m- you know, increasingly uh, an issue that dominates local politics across uh, kind of Southeast Asia, the Pacific. Unfortunately, for the countries in that region, they're going to be buffeted by this superpower competition. Um, I do you? I mean, do you envision basically continuity where Marcos continues to try to, um, you know, reach out to China? but, you know, kind of keeps the United States, um, you know, engaged. I, I know, I mean, if we look at him as the the kind of successor of his father, I mean, his father, until the very end there, obviously had a very good relationship with the United States because, uh, you know, he said all the right things about communism and, and he was on, on our side. Um, but do you, how, where, how do you envision Marcos Jr. kind of managing uh, that relationship moving forward? Can I, can I go on a tangent about his father, though, and his father's effects on U.S. foreign policy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, before I answer the China question. So there's a very interesting pa- pa- passage in the autobiography of Christopher Hitchens. And this is where, where he enters the office of Paul Wolfowitz. Um, he enters Another the office friend of, of the Paul pod. Paul, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm Reach still a friend of the pod. So Hitchens enters the office of Wolfowitz and he sees... Um, on Wolfowitz's mantle, pride of place, there's a picture of Wolfowitz whispering something to Reagan's ear. And he says, um, Mr. Wolfowitz, uh, what are you telling President Reagan there? And Wolfowitz says, I am telling President Reagan to back, to, to, to pull out, to pull his support from Ferdinand Marcos. And the reason why it's so important, apparently, to Wolfowitz is because that was the moment he realized that the United States should stop supporting dictators in 86. So in many ways, if you look at the you cannot tell Revelation. the history of, of you cannot tell the history of neocons without looking at eighty six because that was the moment when the Republican Party realized we shouldn't be supporting dictators we should be cutting their heads off and that of course culminates in in the Iraq War right so so that's Marcos's relationship with the United States it's a it's a vexed relationship okay when it comes to China you have to remember that. Marcos's foreign minister, Carlos P. Romulo, in his autobiography said that if it wasn't because of him normalizing his relations with China, that Nixon wouldn't have normalized his relations with China. So he says, we taught the United States a, a lesson, right? Nixon's detente with Mao would not have been possible without the Philippines' detente with, 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 uh, with, with um, China. And, and Ferdinand Marcos Jr., sees it that way, he feels that he is continuing that legacy of his father in terms of engaging the People's Republic of, of China. And um, nevertheless, though, um, and this is something Duterte never did, he, every time he says that he wants to continue engaging China, he'll say that the relationship between the United States and the Philippines is a strong relationship, and it's a relationship. It's a strong relationship that's going to outlast my presidency and presidencies after mine. So he's, he's very tactful and he's a lot more tactful than Duterte, that's for sure. 
more tactful than Rodrigo Duterte. That oh, just yeah. doesn't seem yeah. possible to me. But I'll take your word for it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good place to to wrap up here. And, and uh, we would love to have you back on the show, both, you know, to, to continue talking about uh, the Philippines in a, in a contemporary sense and also to dig into the relationship between the Philippines and the U.S. in a historical sense because there's so much there to tell. So, um, Lissandro Claudio, again, thank you uh, so much for being on the program. Assistant Professor UC Berkeley, uh, the book, uh, check it out, Liberalism and the Post-Colony, Thinking the State in 20th Century Philippines. Again, thanks thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Derek.